Section 46 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1 by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The accession of George III, Anno Domini 1762. Johnson's pension, Itard 53. The accession of George III to the throne of these kingdoms opened a new and brighter prospect to men of literary merit who had been honoured with no mark of royal favour in the preceding reign. His present majesty's education in this country, as well as his taste and beneficence, prompted him to be the patron of science and the arts, and early this year Johnson, having been represented to him as a very learned and good man, without any certain provision, his majesty was pleased to grant him a pension of three hundred pounds a year. Footnote, how great a sum this must have been in Johnson's eyes is shown by a passage in his Life of Savage. Savage says he was received into Lord Tyrconnell's family and allowed a pension of two hundred pounds a year. His presence, Johnson writes, was sufficient to make any place of public entertainment popular, and his approbation and example constituted the fashion. So powerful is genius when it is invested with the glitter of affluence. In the last summer of his life, speaking of the chance of his pension being doubled, he said that with six hundred a year a man would have the consciousness that he should pass the remainder of his life in splendour, how long soever it might be, post June the 30th, 1784. David Hume, writing in 1751, says, I have fifty pounds a year, a hundred pounds worth of books, great store of linens and fine clothes, and near a hundred pounds in my pocket. Along with order, frugality, and a strong spirit of independency, good health, a contented humour, and an unabating love of study. In these circumstances I must esteem myself one of the happy and fortunate. J. H. Burton's Hume Goldsmith, in his present state of polite learning, makes the following observation on pensions granted in France to authors. The French nobility have certainly a most pleasing way of satisfying the vanity of an author, without indulging his avarice, a man of literary merit is sure of being caressed by the great, though seldom enriched. His pension from the crown just supplies half a competence, and the sale of his labours makes some small addition to his circumstances. Thus the author leads a life of splendid poverty, and seldom becomes wealthy or indolent enough to discontinue an exertion of those abilities by which he rose. Whether Johnson's pension led to his writing less than he would otherwise have done may be questioned. It is true that in the next seventeen years he did little more than finish his edition of Shakespeare and write his Journey to the Western Islands and two or three political pamphlets. But since he wrote the last number of The Idler in the spring of 1760, he had done very little. His mind which, to use Murphy's words, Life, page 80, had been 
strained and over-laboured by constant exertion, had not recovered its tone. It is likely that without the pension he would not have lived to write the second greatest of his works, The Lives of the Poets. End of the Earl of Bute, who was then Prime Minister, had the honour to announce this instance of his sovereign's bounty, concerning which many and various stories, all equally erroneous, have been propagated, maliciously representing it as a political bribe to Johnson, to desert his avowed principles and become the tool of a government which he held to be founded in usurpation. I have taken care to have it in my power to refute them from the most authentic information. Lord Bute told me that Mr. Wedderburn, now Lord Loughborough, was the person who first mentioned this subject to him. Footnote. Mr. Forster, Life of Goldsmith, Volume 1, page 281, says, Bute's pensions to his Scottish crew, showing meaner than ever in Churchill's daring verse, it occurred to the shrewd and wary Wedderburn to advise, for a set-off, that Samuel Johnson should be pensioned. The prophecy of famine, in which Churchill's attack was made on the pensioned Scots, was published in January 1763 nearly half a year after Johnson's pension was conferred. End of footnote. Lord Loughborough told me that the pension was granted to Johnson solely as the reward of his literary merit, without any stipulation whatever, or even tacit understanding that he should write for administration. His lordship added that he was confident the political tracts which Johnson afterwards did write, as they were entirely consonant with his own opinions, would have been written by him though no pension had been granted to him. Footnote. For his Falklands Islands, materials were furnished to him by the Ministry, post-1771. The Patriot was called for, he writes, by my political friends, post-November the 26th, 1774. That taxation no tyranny was written at the desire of those who were then in power, I have no doubt, writes Boswell, post under March the 21st, 1775. Johnson complained to a friend that his pension having been given to him as a literary character, he had been applied to by administration to write political pamphlets, Ibid. Are these statements inconsistent with what Lord Loughborough said, and with Boswell's assertion, Ibid, that Johnson neither asked nor received from government any reward whatsoever for his political labours? I think not. I think that had Johnson unpensioned been asked by the Ministry to write these pamphlets, he would have written them. He would have been pleased by the compliment, and for pay would have trusted to the sale. Speaking of the first two of these pamphlets, the third had not yet appeared, he said, Except what I had from the booksellers, I did not get a farthing by them. 
post march the twenty first seventeen seventy two they had not cost him much labour the false alarm was written between eight o'clock of one night and twelve o'clock of the next it went through three editions in less than two months post seventeen seventy the patriot was written on a saturday post november twenty sixth seventeen seventy four at all events johnson had received his pension for more than seven years before he did any work for the ministry in croft's life of young which johnson adopted the following passage was perhaps intended to be a defence of johnson as a writer for the ministry yet who shall say with certainty that young was a pensioner in all modern periods of this country have not the writers on one side been regularly called hirelings and on the other patriots End of footnote. johnson's interview with lord boot anno domini seventeen sixty two mr thomas sheridan and mr murphy who then lived a good deal both with him and mr wedderburn told me that they previously talked with johnson upon this matter and that it was perfectly understood by all parties that the pension was merely honorary sir joshua reynolds told me that johnson called on him after his majesty's intention had been notified to him and said he wished to consult his friends as to the propriety of his accepting this mark of the royal favour after the definitions which he had given in his dictionary of pension and pensioners he said he would not have sir joshua's answer till the next day when he would call again and desired he might think of it sir joshua answered that he was clear to give his opinion then that there could be no objection to his receiving from the king a reward for literary merit and that certainly the definitions in his dictionary were not applicable to him johnson it should seem was satisfied for he did not call again till he had accepted the pension and had waited on lord bute to thank him he then told sir joshua that lord bute said to him expressly it is not given to you for anything you are to do but for what you have done his lordship he said behaved in the handsomest manner he repeated the words twice that he might be sure johnson heard them and thus set his mind perfectly at ease this nobleman who has been so virulently abused acted with great honour in this instance and displayed a mind truly liberal a minister of a more narrow and selfish disposition would have availed himself of such an opportunity to fix an implied obligation on a man of johnson's powerful talents to give him his support murphy's account of the pension i type fifty three mr murphy and the late mr sheridan severally contended for the distinction of having been the first who mentioned to mr wedderburn that Johnson ought to have a pension. When I spoke of this to Lord Loughborough, wishing to know if he recollected the prime mover in the business, he said, all his friends assisted. 
and when I told him that Mr. Sheridan strenuously asserted his claim to it, his lordship said, he rang the bell. And it is but just to add that Mr. Sheridan told me that when he communicated to Dr. Johnson that a pension was to be granted him, he replied in a fervour of gratitude, the English language does not afford me terms adequate to my feelings on this occasion. I must have recourse to the French. I am penetré with His Majesty's goodness. When I repeated this to Dr. Johnson, he did not contradict it. Footnote. Murphy's account is nearly as follows, life, page 92. Lord Loughborough was well acquainted with Johnson, but having heard much of his independent spirit and of the downfall of Osborne the bookseller, ante page one five four, he did not know but his benevolence might be rewarded with a folio on his head. He desired me to undertake the task. I went to the chambers in the inner temple lane, which in fact were the abode of wretchedness, by slow and studied approaches the message was disclosed. Johnson made a long pause. He asked if it was seriously intended. He fell into a profound meditation, and his own definition of a pensioner occurred to him. He desired to meet next day and dine at the Mitre Tavern. At that meeting he gave up all his scruples. On the following day Lord Loughborough conducted him to the Earl of Bute. The conversation that passed was in the evening related to me by Dr. Johnson. He expressed his sense of His Majesty's bounty and thought himself the more highly honoured as the favour was not bestowed on him for having dipped his pen in faction. No, sir, said Lord Bute, it is not offered to you for having dipped your pen in faction, nor with a design that you ever should. The reviewer of Hawkins's Johnson in the Monthly Review, volume 76, page 375, who was no doubt Murphy, adds a little circumstance. On the next day Mr. Murphy was in the Temple Lane soon after nine. He got Johnson up and dressed in due time, and saw him set off at eleven. Malone's note on what Lord Bute said to Johnson is as follows. This was said by Lord Bute, as Dr. Burney was informed by Johnson himself, in answer to a question which he put previously to his acceptance of the intended bounty. Pray, my lord, what am I expected to do for this pension? End of footnote. His definitions of pension and pensioner, partly founded on the satirical verses of Pope, which he quotes, may be generally true. Footnote. In Britain's Senate he a seat obtains, and one more pensioner, St. Stephen gains. Moral Essays, number 3, line 392. Johnson left the definition of pension and pensioner unchanged in the fourth edition of the dictionary, corrected by him in 1773. End of footnote. 
and yet everybody must allow that there may be and have been instances of pensions given and received upon liberal and honourable terms thus then it is clear that there was nothing inconsistent or humiliating in johnson's accepting of a pension so unconditionally and so honourably offered to him johnson's letter to lord bute anno domini seventeen sixty two but i shall not detain my readers longer by any words of my own on a subject on which i am happily enabled by the favour of the earl of bute to present them with what johnson himself wrote his lordship having been pleased to communicate to me a copy of the following letter to his late father Footnote. he died on march the tenth seventeen ninety two this paragraph and the letter are not in the first two editions End of footnote which does great honour both to the writer and to the noble person to whom it is addressed to the right honourable the earl of bute my lord when the bills footnote, the treasury home office exchequer of receipt and audit office records have been searched for a warrant granting a pension to dr johnson without success in seventeen eighty two by act of parliament all pensions on the civil list establishment were from that time to be paid at the exchequer in the exchequer order book michaelmas seventeen eighty two number forty six page seventy four the following memorandum occurs memdom third of december seventeen eighty two there was issued to the following persons by order sixth of november seventeen eighty two the sums set against their names respectively etc persons names johnson samuel lld pensions per annum three hundred pounds due to fifth of july seventeen eighty two two quarters one hundred and fifty pounds this pension was paid at the exchequer from that time to the quarter ending tenth of october seventeen eighty four it is clear that the pension was payable quarterly and at the old quarter days july the fifth october the tenth january the fifth april the fifth though payment was sometimes delayed once he was paid half yearly see post under march the twentieth seventeen seventy one the expression bills was a general term at that time for notes cheques and warrants and no doubt covered some kind of treasury warrant the above information i owe to the kindness of my friend mr leonard h courtney m p late financial secretary to the treasury the future favours are the future payments his pension was not for life and depended therefore entirely on the king's pleasure the following letter in the grenville papers volume two page sixty eight seems to show that johnson thought the pension due on the new quarter day dr johnson to mr grenville july the second seventeen sixty three sir be pleased to pay to the bearer seventy five pounds being the quarterly payment of a pension granted by his majesty and due on the twenty fourth day of june last to sir your most humble servant samuel johnson End of footnote my lord when the bills were yesterday delivered to me by mr wedderburn 
i was informed by him of the future favours which his majesty has by your lordship's recommendation been induced to intend for me bounty always receives part of its value from the manner in which it is bestowed your lordship's kindness includes every circumstance that can gratify delicacy or enforce obligation you have conferred your favours on a man who has neither alliance nor interest who has not merited them by services nor courted them by officiousness you have spared him the shame of solicitation and the anxiety of suspense what has been thus elegantly given will i hope not be reproachfully enjoyed i shall endeavour to give your lordship the only recompense which generosity desires the gratification of finding that your benefits are not improperly bestowed i am my lord your lordship's most obliged most obedient and most humble servant samuel johnson july the twentieth seventeen sixty two a visit to devonshire i type fifty three this year his friend sir joshua reynolds paid a visit of some weeks to his native country devonshire in which he was accompanied by johnson who was much pleased with this jaunt and declared he had derived from it a great accession of new ideas Footnote. they left london on august the sixteenth and returned to it on september the twenty sixth taylor's reynolds northcote records of this visit i remember when mr reynolds was pointed out to me at a public meeting where a great crowd was assembled i got as near to him as i could from the pressure of the people to touch the skirt of his coat which i did with great satisfaction to my mind northcote's reynolds in like manner reynolds when a youth had in a great crowd touched the hand of Pope, Ibid, page 19. Pope, when a boy of eleven, persuaded some friends to take him to the coffee-house which Dryden frequented. Johnson's Works, volume 8, page 236. Who touched old Northcote's hand? Has the apostolic succession been continued? Since writing these lines, I have read with pleasure the following passage, in Mr. Ruskin's Praeterita, chapter 1, page 16. When at three and a half I was taken to have my portrait painted by Mr. Northcote, I had not been ten minutes alone with him before I asked him why there were holes in his carpet. Dryden, Pope, Reynolds, Northcote, Ruskin, so runs the chain of genius with only one weak link in it. End of footnote. He was entertained at the seats of several noblemen and gentlemen in the west of England. Footnote. At one of these seats, Dr. Amiot, physician in London, told me he happened to meet him. In order to amuse him till dinner should be ready, he was taken out to walk in the garden. The master of the house, thinking it proper to introduce something scientific into the conversation, addressed him thus are you a botanist dr johnson no sir answered johnson i am not a botanist and 
alluding no doubt to his near-sightedness should i wish to become a botanist i must first turn myself into a reptile Bustle, end of footnote. johnson at plymouth anno domini seventeen sixty two but the greatest part of the time was passed at plymouth where the magnificence of the navy the shipbuilding and all its circumstances afforded him a grand subject of contemplation the commissioner of the dockyard paid him the compliment of ordering the yacht to convey him and his friend to the Eddiston, to which they accordingly sailed but the weather was so tempestuous that they could not land Footnote. mrs piozzi anecdotes page two eight five says the roughness of the language used on board a man-of-war where he passed a week on a visit to captain knight disgusted him terribly he asked an officer what some place was called and received her answer that it was where the loplolly man kept his loplolly a reply he considered as disrespectful gross and ignorant Mr. Croker says that Captain Knight of the Belle Isle lay for a couple of months in 1762 in Plymouth Sound. Croker's Boswell, page 480. It seems unlikely that Johnson passed a whole week on shipboard. Loplolly, or Loblolly, is explained in Roderick Random, chapter 27. Roderick, when acting as the surgeon's assistant on a man of war, suffered he says from the rude insults of the sailors and petty officers among whom i was known by the name of lobbolly boy End of footnote. reynolds and he were at this time the guests of dr mudge the celebrated surgeon and now physician of that place not more distinguished for quickness of parts and variety of knowledge than loved and esteemed for his amiable manners Footnote. He was the father of Colonel William Mudge, distinguished by his trigonometrical survey of England and Wales. Right. End footnote. And here Johnson formed an acquaintance with Dr. Mudge's father, that very eminent divine, the Reverend Zachariah Mudge, prebendary of Exeter, who was idolised in the West, both for his excellence as a preacher and the uniform perfect propriety of his private conduct footnote i have myself heard reynolds declare that the elder mr mudge was in his opinion the wisest man he had ever met with in his life he has always told me that he owed his first disposition to generalize and to view things in the abstract to him northcote's reynolds and a footnote he preached a sermon purposely that Johnson might hear him, and we shall see afterwards that Johnson honoured his memory by drawing his character. While Johnson was at Plymouth, he saw a great many of its inhabitants, and was not sparing of his very entertaining conversation. It was here that he made that frank and truly original confession that ignorance, pure ignorance, was the cause of a wrong definition in his dictionary of the word paston to the no small surprise of the lady who put the question to him 
who having the most profound reverence for his character so as almost to suppose him endowed with infallibility expected to hear an explanation of what to be sure seems strange to a common reader drawn from some deep learned source with which she was unacquainted an enemy of the dockers i tart fifty three Sir Joshua Reynolds, to whom I was obliged for my information concerning this excursion, mentions a very characteristical anecdote of Johnson while at Plymouth. Having observed that, in consequence of the dockyard, a new town, footnote, the present Devonport, end of footnote, had arisen just two miles off as a rival to the old, and knowing from his sagacity and just observation of human nature, that it is certain if a man hates at all he will hate his next neighbour he concluded that this new and rising town could not but excite the envy and jealousy of the old in which conjecture he was very soon confirmed he therefore set himself resolutely on the side of the old town the established town in which his lot was cast considering it as a kind of duty to stand by it he accordingly entered warmly into its interests and upon every occasion talked of the dockers as the inhabitants of the new town were called as upstarts and aliens plymouth is very plentifully supplied with water by a river brought into it from a great distance which is so abundant that it runs to waste in the town the dock or new town being totally destitute of water petitioned plymouth that a small portion of the conduit might be permitted to go to them and this was now under consideration johnson affecting to entertain the passions of the place was violent in opposition and half laughing at himself for his pretended zeal where he had no concern exclaimed no no i am against the dockers i am a plymouth man rogues let them die of thirst they shall not have a drop Footnote. a friend of mine once heard him during this visit exclaim with the utmost vehemence i hate a docker blakeway northcote life of reynolds says that reynolds took johnson to dine at a house where he devoured so large a quantity of new honey and of clotted cream, besides drinking large potations of new cider, that the entertainer found himself much embarrassed between his anxious regard for the doctor's health and his fear of breaking through the rules of politeness by giving him a hint on the subject. The strength of Johnson's constitution, however, saved him from any unpleasant consequences. Sir Joshua informed a friend that he had never seen Johnson intoxicated by hard drinking but once, and that happened at the time that they were together in Devonshire, when, one night after supper, Johnson drank three bottles of wine, which affected his speech so much that he was unable to articulate a hard word which occurred in the course of his conversation. He attempted it three times, but failed. Yet at last accomplished it and then said well sir joshua i think it is now time to go to bed Ibid.
One part of this story, however, is wanting in accuracy, and therefore all may be untrue. Reynolds at this time was not knighted. Johnson said, post April the 7th, 1778, I did not leave off wine because I could not bear it. I have drunk three bottles of port without being the worse for it. University College has witnessed this. See, however, post over the 24th, 1779, where he said, I used to slink home when I had drunk too much. Also ante, page 103, and post over the 28th, 1783. End of footnote. End of section 46.